Yo, sponsoring us today are Westway Nissan. We've got an awesome offer on and always have an awesome offer on for service personnel and veterans. Westway Nissan are the largest Nissan dealership in the UK and they offer up to 20% off their vehicles for members or former members of Her Majesty's Armed Forces. 20% is massive. They have new and used vehicles for sale, private and commercial models, everything from the Nissan Note to the stunning Nissan GTR. Westway Nissan have got branches all over the UK. They've even got one in Aldershot, the home of the British Army. So if you're thinking about getting a new or a used car, you can save yourself a ton of cash with Westway and a discount for ex-military. Get online and have a look at westwaynissan.co.uk or better yet, get your ass into one of their branches. They've got them all over the place. See the cars for yourself. Not only that, if you're ex-military and looking for work, Westway are massive on recruiting you guys and girls into all sorts of roles, from technicians and sales through to service receptionists. If you're stuck for work or not sure where you want to go in Civvy Street, give Westway a call. They will help you out. It is not an easy decision working out what you want to do. At the very least, they can point you in the right direction. At the very best, they can help you get a job. WestwayNissan.co.uk and Westway Nissan on social media. Also sponsoring us today are Rugby for Heroes, who are a not-for-profit organisation founded by a keen group of rugby players. Designed to host various fundraising events to raise money for a range of armed forces charities, including 353, Healthy Heroes, the Royal British Legion and the Soldiers Charity. Since forming in 2009 to commemorate the loss in action of Private Joe Whitaker, a four-paralad, they have raised over £100,000 for their benefit charities, which is massive. The founders are members of Old Lemontonians RFC and are massive supporters of the armed forces and their families. Check them out on their website www.rugbyforheroes.org and their Facebook, Twitter and Instagram feeds at Rugby Number 4 Heroes. Their next major event is the Rugby for Heroes Beer and Gin Festival to be held at the Old Lemontonians RFC on the weekend of the 10th and 11th of May next year, 2019. To get that penciled into your diaries, that's going to be a cracking weekend. They're really proud to be sponsoring the HR podcast as they see it as a part of their ongoing continuing programme of support for veterans serving members and their families. That's it for the sponsors. My guest today is the CEO of Team Rubicon UK. He's a former director with Health for Heroes. He's also a former Royal Marines Commando Officer, having served in Afghanistan. Um, we had a great chat. We had a lengthy chat. Uh, there was a lot of belching involved with some particularly fine, strong ales, uh, but only a couple of them and uh, preceded by very strong coffee. So the, the chat meandered through a variety of topics, and uh, I <laughs> it was interesting. Enjoy the show. H plus 28. Is it 28? Is it 28? I think it's 28. It might be 29. It's 28 with uh, Richard Sharp. Enjoy. You're on now. Doing a thing. Richard Sharp. Hey, mate, you're right. Absolute pleasure, buddy. Uh, you got, have you got coffee to finish, or should we crack over a beer? Yeah, caffeinate and then uh, give me some booze to loosen the lips. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Where'd you travel from today? Uh, Pool down the south coast. Ah, and yeah. you're going down in London tomorrow? Back to yeah. London tonight, and then I'm on uh, another another podcast tomorrow morning. Yeah. I'm a bit of a roadshow. I'm always bouncing around. Say, yeah. Are you allowed to mention that podcast? What's he said? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, don't know. declassified. Yeah, I I, oh, you have mentioned it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be a cracker. That's yeah. going to be a cracker. I'm looking yeah. forward to seeing it. Yeah, yeah. With Michael, that is going to be a good one. Um, so, uh, in fact, on that note, declassified, and you go through all the military military the story mm. get your pants the on back to front for the that story yeah <laughs> what were you what unit were you? i was uh predominantly 4-2 commando mm-hmm. so like war marines like i know you guys are the paris you stay like we want we bounce around all over the place so Ooh, you're wrong oh really yeah you, you bounce about between the commando what, what you call them the units the, yeah. yeah yeah but what's the it's 2-9 commando right royal artillery oh you were you were two nine? No, four two. No, sorry, mate. Yeah, I was I'm a boot neck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Start again. Yeah, we got four two, four five. Forty. Of forty. But yeah. what are those called? Because we Commandos. Like, commandos. Sorry. Yeah, commandos. Sorry for me, guys. Okay, it's right, alright. Yeah, yeah you um, bounced around between them. See, we went through a, back in the day that was the, we would ch- change between battalions then uh, it stopped okay. when I joined up it kind of stopped and it come, came back in yeah. just because that crossing over of skills and sure. different roles and all that, yeah. So when did you when did you get in? So I joined the Corps in 2005, in the summer, um, and then it's 15 months training as an officer, and then passed out Christmas 2006, mm-hmm. and uh, bounced straight to Herit 5. So we uh, passed out on the Thursday, I was in Ganners on the Saturday, <laughs> like high-fived with the troop commander coming out on the tail ramp, and then just got my lads in theatre, in a desert league, <laughs> in between scraps. <laughs> Is that, you went straight into a platoon commander role? Yeah. On yeah. The- <laughs> Yeah, Mate, they must have hated the you. The lads have been out there two months, and I'm like wet behind the ears, yeah. a little piss patch dropping down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they must have thought we shit out. Yeah, who is I this know, guy? <laughs> I, I'm just thinking back. I remember, like, a, do you do you have pips, officers? Yeah, one yeah. pip. So you'd have been a one pipper. Yeah, oh, that must have been hard work. <laughs> the lads have all got that long oh, stare already. Yes, like, yes. covered I, in I, gun I, grease. How did you find that? Um, <laughs> it's a baptism of fire, isn't it? Like. You get in and you, there's different approaches you can take. And mine was just to shut up for a while, yeah. just figure it out, let my troop sergeant do his thing. And eventually, after a couple of scraps, you've got a, re- you've got a rapport with the guys anyway. Yeah, that's the best way. But, or you can go in and just start forefinger pointing. And some people tried that and it doesn't oh, work. Yeah, it does so well. not work. It does not work. As I was about to say, you, get, you, you either just accept it and crack on yeah. you know, and do the way, way a good platoon commander should operate from the outset or your, mm. or your ego kicks in yeah. and your daddy's, 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 <laughs> great grandfather's flipping dogs captain's lieutenant colonel you think is looking at me and think, oh, I've, got a, I've, got a, yeah. I've got a feast of boys <laughs> no, you're no. no so no, I, I was good. the keep my head down for a while figure it out gently and uh, try not to get shot in the back by my own lads <laughs> so, yeah that would have been straight in Helmand then at Bastion yeah so bounced in through Bastion had uh, whatever that last minute training's called in Camp Bastion um, they receive in the theatre they give you a bit of gem yeah what is that it's just a pre-deployment isn't it yeah, so, yeah. and then uh I can't remember the name of the op, but it was a, a commando a commando unit level op, um, level on the ground in Desert Liga. And yeah, literally high-fived the guy I was replacing on the tail ramp of the Chinook. He handed me uh, a compass and something else that we couldn't draw from Bastion. I was like, cheers, mate. <laughs> and he was off, and there was just these lads looking at me, like, who the oh, fuck is no. this? <laughs> when did you get out? Uh, 2012. Oh, okay. Yeah, 2012. And in, uh, what, got out as captain? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I did what seven and a bit years. And you've been out now for six years. Yeah, I've been a civvy almost as long as I was a bootneck. What age were you when you what age when you joined up now? Twenty two. 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 Twenty two.
23. Yeah, 22. Yeah. On his six years of getting out, you did some severe ass kissing, and now you're CEO of, <laughs> T- <laughs> CEO of Team Rubicon. Just took my military skills, <laughs> applied that to Civvy Street, exactly. find important people. I know you off this work. <laughs> <laughs> How did that happen? Um, so good, I, good effort, by the way. Good effort. Yeah, mate. cheers, good mate. Effort. Um, mate, I'm a bit of, I don't know, I'm just an opportunist. I'm a cuffer. Yeah. Um, so... I was one of the few officers that joined in that period without a degree that could promote to captain. Okay. So I'm just jammy. Uh, I go through life just being jammy. So I I joined with some A-levels of sorts, the pretty rough results, but promoted at the same rate as everyone else that joined with degrees from Oxford and Cambridge. Um, we spoke a bit different there. And yeah. then uh, got out. I was married at the time, and uh, we lived down in Plymouth in a married quarter. And I was, she was from London, so she wanted to go back to London. And I was like, okay, I'll work in the city. And uh, she introduced me to someone she knew that worked in the city. And mm. I went to see him. And I had my Solomon running day sack on my back. And he said, what do you want to do, mate? I said, oh, I want to work in the city. He said, well, what do you mean by that? Well, well you know, like London. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, no, the city means this. Because I was a Cornish bumpkin. And I was like, <laughs> right. And he gave, me, uh, he gave me the name of a couple of people to go see. What does the city mean? Hang on. What does the city mean? <laughs> Go on. <laughs> like financial district. <laughs> right, financial okay. services. I didn't realise that when you said yeah. it. Oh, is that, no, I, I didn't. I yeah, didn't so I was like, well, just London. And he was like, no, the yeah. city means finance and God, insurance. Yeah. And God, yeah. So, I think uh, it just means that to officers. <laughs> I think it's just officers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, to the lads it means any city. Yeah. A cathedral and a university. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I just beat the streets for six months. Anyone that would give me a coffee, I had a coffee with. And just picking it up, picking up the pattern, becoming a bit more credible each time. And eventually I got a job um, in an investment bank in Deutsche Bank in the city, right. which I mean, a massive culture shock from the core. Yeah. Um, I did it for a while. I didn't like it, but I was all right at it. You know, we got promoted and then I... What were you doing? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 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 I'm genuinely, uh, I did three years of not really sure, but basically I started off in strategy. Then I ended up in risk. And then I ended up in liquidity structuring, which was sort of making up financial products to sell to other banks. We were just creating money out of nowhere yeah, yeah, and yeah, selling yeah. it. Um, <laughs> that is literally the limit of my knowledge on it. Yeah. Well. <laughs> um, and yeah, then got an opportunity to go to Help for Heroes and jumped at that. Yeah. I got promoted there quite quickly. Then all of a sudden, I wasn't long out and I was a director of a national charity. And then I got made redundant from there, actually. And I thought, oh, fuck, my luck's running out. And then where? Help for Heroes. And then uh, I thought, oh, my luck's finally running out. And Team Rubicon was just there. And this is an amazing job. And and here I am now. Um, best thing I've ever done. So, I mean, it looks like it. It sounds like it. Um, Team Rubicon is fascinating to me. Mm. We'll come on to that in a minute. Yeah. Right, redundancy with help the heroes. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, how come they were cutting? Um, is, this about, is this around the time that... Uh, how long have you been with uh, Team Rubicon? Two years? One year. One year. Yeah, so it was this time last year. Um, you know, there was, I, I was part of a job that got quite big and not, then. Not why were you maybe redundant? Why were the redundancies happening? Well, it was only really me. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't many. It wasn't big cuts at the time. It was just restructuring. Mm. New CEO came in. She didn't want me doing what I was doing. Um, she had different visions for, for different jobs and better people. Mm. Um, so yeah, that was, that was my time. One of those things. Um, but mate, you know. People say these like really cliche things to you, like it'll be the best thing that ever happened to you, and it was yeah. because I w- I wouldn't have applied for this gig, I wouldn't have been looking, yeah. and this would have passed me by. And I mean, I can't imagine life without Team Rubicon now. As a as a as a although they're both charities, it must be completely completely different in the structure, are they? Yeah, I mean, I mean explain in a nutshell what Team Rubicon does. So 
I mean, it doesn't feel like a charity. You're right. It feels like a, like almost like a. No, I don't want to say private military. That's the wrong thing. But basically, we take ex-military people, predominantly ex-military, seventy percent, retrain them as disaster responders, and you know, earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes abroad. That's our sweet spot. Rapid onset disasters and dropping little agile teams in, rapidly assessing the disaster, mm. bringing infrastructure to communities. You know, that life-saving aid in the first six weeks after. While we wait for the heavy guys to roll in, so it's a bit like a Pathfinder brigade reconnaissance type um, m- movement. Mm-hmm. And at home, we work with the local resilience forums. Flooding's obviously the main thing in the UK, um, but it's just it's just mega because you know I'm surrounded by people that just love what they're doing because they're all volunteers. You know, mm-hmm. we're not paying these disaster responders, mm-hmm. and uh, working with people that are whilst everyone else is flying out of danger, they're putting their hands up to walk towards trouble for free so i'm just like, i'm surrounded by positive people all the time how do you keep up if those 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 kind of volunteers they must have their own jobs to keep sustaining them yeah is it hard is the retention hard or retention of the good people are which are trained well what sort of happens is like you get um let's say there's 20 people really engaged at any one time that 20 people just sort of moves around the volunteer base because they come in and out of what ah. they're doing in their normal life because you've got everything from teachers, bankers, security consultants, you know, the builders. Everyone's got their own life. So there might be a period of time when they can get mega involved for six months. And then they have to go away and do their normal stuff. And they're just waiting on the bleeper in case a disaster happens. I see. Um, okay. So, and that's the other good thing. So you're always close to different people at different times. So the mm-hmm. workforce feels like it's constantly changing in ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this common v- set of values in them. And, uh, you know, when you leave the military and you take your uniform off, Civvy Street can be quite hard for a while while you figure out that actually we're completely different for good and bad reasons. Mm. So to be back amongst people with a common set of goals, believing in something bigger than themselves, the crack, the purpose, all that stuff mm. is, uh, yeah, it's mega. Yeah, the, uh, that, when you, that, that culture shock when you, when you enter the, the city, is that, I mean, w- did you have a, a, a proper, no, a civilian job before you joined the Corps? No, I was um, I was a rugby player down in Cornwall for okay. a few years, and uh, I realised it sort of twenty twenty one. I was never going to be a, a Premiership rugby player. So, and I was working with my old man as well as a yacht rigger, um, and did a bit of removals work for Pickford's, just bits and pieces. Um, but I always said I was going to be a bootneck. My my dad was a corporal in the corps, huh. and so from about you know Royal Marines defined me pretty much every day since I was about nine ten. You know, I was always thinking about it. And it's defined me pretty much every day ever since. My sort of ninth, tenth, like, uh, you know, it's who I wanted to be. Then it's who I was. And now it's my reference point of, you know, as I make decisions, like what would the old me do? You know, there's, there's so much quality came out of the, being yeah. in the core, that, yeah. uh, which I hope endures for the rest of my life. I don't get too uh, too soft. Yeah, it can be hard for people to keep on to that stuff, can't it? You learn, you learn so many, I, I think, from, from my experience anyway you get so many good skills and good exp- and, and experiences that have pos- positive impact in yeah. whatever way shape or form and it 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 builds you there's very few people it doesn't build as a person yeah. when i joined up i night and day when i am now when, you know, when i was a kid into my into my teens i was you know hardly any uh, a real low self-esteem um uh real low confidence to, hideous mm. i mean i was a, a Gopping ginger, pasty, flipping, <laughs> you know. Work. work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then over the course of my career, 
you just you just completely changed. Yeah. I'm, in, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in polar opposite. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> completely polar opposite. But in in the tasks and the missions and all of that, it, when it comes to achieving and, and achieving things and knowing mm. how to deal with people or deal with teams and and just just mo- self motivation. Got so much from it. There's very few people. It's one of my I argue myself <clears throat> over like the national service. There'd be so many benefits to being back national service. Mm-hmm. There'd be so there'd be so many cons as well. Oh, yeah, but, yeah. But can you imagine if every kid now went through had to go through national service? Mm. What how how society how different society would be in ten years' time? I think just a year or two. It doesn't have to be just 10 basic years. training. Just even yeah, get yeah. some perspective on yeah. life. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, bigger big part of what I want to do with Team Rubicon is when we're when the brand is big enough. Is you know, I really want to champion those that have served and what they bring to life and one of the biggest is perspective you know i remember being at the bank and uh and almost like getting in the shit because they said like you know you're pretty good but it doesn't look like you care enough you know we're working till like midnight one in the morning you just don't seem like you care oh, i did care i'm working really hard but but you're not showing it that's because my perspective is no one's dying today i'm just going to be late so i'll just work through like no one's dying here today yeah. so my reference point of stress was very different to everyone yeah. else's and i've definitely carried that through and i heard you talking to michael coates about traumatic growth as well and you know there were some pretty shit days in uh in afghan as we, we both know but i wouldn't be who i am now i couldn't mm. be the leader i am now had i not experienced that and had to get through that and mm. bring people with me through that and so even the really bad stuff about the military ends up i think as a positive eventually yeah it's like you can never you can never have as stressful as a day as you have when you're surfing. <laughs> I can't so, imagine how we'll, the world can ever throw that at us ever yeah, well, again. You should never have as a stressful day. Yeah. yeah. No, no, you're absolutely right. Um, <clears throat> we were talking before, before off, off air before this. Yeah, I think we were on about when, yeah, that first period when you when mm, you come back after after certain tours, mm. and uh, you went out that tour. You were on about Eric Five it was straight after the, the Eric Four tour. I came off, so I right, Eric yeah. Five the 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 marines that you went out to um and uh oh god i couldn't when i first came back for a good while i got, I used to get really irritated over people getting like my wife at the time uh and friends getting losing the shit over little things <laughs> like you know the, the, the i'd see everything black and white so the, the boiler break down oh my god what are we gonna do is because of your it's not an issue you know oh such and such hasn't spoken to me is it's not an issue no it's like no one's getting shot yeah chill out <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like but i get angry over it so, oh, yeah. jesus christ yeah it's flipping int- it's interesting yeah it is interesting but um how how long has team rubicon been going for so like, it started in the states uh nine years ago there was a couple of uh, USM, yeah, a couple of USMC guys. One sniper, uh, Jake Wood. You don't think he's a sniper? He's six foot six, ex American football player. He's massive, really annoyingly good looking as well. <laughs> and I stand next to him, all short and fat, with broken nose and cauliflower ears. <laughs> I, I feel really good about myself. Yeah. Um, but it was uh, the Haiti earthquake <clears throat> nine years ago. And he was a military blogger apparently back in the day, and that was quite a big thing in the states, like duffel blog and stuff. And he was he had quite a big following. Mm-hmm. And um, he was—he just put out a Charlie Charlie one, like an all call to all the people, and said, uh, "I'm looking for good people to come with me to Haiti." And he got—I can't remember—you know, team of about ten military guys, and they all just uh, flew to Dominican Republic, 
hiked to the Dominican border, were told not to cross uh, because they couldn't be guaranteed their safety. And they cross anyway. And that's where the Rubicon comes from, crossing the Rubicon, when Caesar crossed the Rubicon. What's the Rubicon? What's Rubicon? It was a river. um, Okay. And it's when Caesar knew when he crossed it with the legions, there was no going back. So the saying, crossing the Rubicon, means, you know, you're going beyond the point of no return. Geographically, where's the Rubicon River? Uh, Near Rome. Oh, I I didn't know that. Okay, I see. Neither did I, (laughs) until I got this shot. Right, as, as I said, I near see. Rome, I was like, is it near Rome? Is it near Rome? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Crossing the point of no return. Interesting. Yeah. So that's where the Rubicon bit comes from, because they were like, well, we're going anyway. And Jake was given a pistol by someone, because he's like, well, you're a sniper, you can have a pistol. And that was the first and last time anyone on Team Rubicon will carry a weapon. Um, so they went in. Well, just, what, what did he do? <laughs> <laughs> just for protection. Yeah. And he ended no, into his joking. foot. <laughs> um, and they were doing basically medical aid. Yeah. Because... It's just chaos, and there was just devastation and panic all around them, and they had limited supplies, and it's it's just like kazivacking someone off a battlefield, and they yeah. were like, actually, what we've got here is something that's useful in this space. So small teams doing things, Team Rubicon, that's where it came from. They just went massive in the States. There are 90,000 volunteers there now, Whoa. 35 million a year, because there's such a strong veteran 90, culture. 000. Yeah, there's such a strong veteran culture. And uh, they love charity out there. Cheers. Um, and three years ago, cheers, cheers buddy. They, um, General Nick Parker, who was uh, Commander Land Forces in the UK, he wanted to bring it here. So he reached out to them. And we were the first offshoot internationally. Okay. So we've been going three years. Um, and it's had some ups and downs. You know, the first two years, it was, it was trying to figure out what part of America it could bring here and that would work and what do we have to do to make this English and make it work in this uh, this environment so I've been there a year now and actually we're starting to really get some success we're starting we've just been out in Indonesia twice since the summer um, we've had a big operation in the Caribbean last year we've done bits and pieces in the UK for flooding um, operations in Nepal so we're cutting our teeth in some really punchy areas but we're leveraging you know, it's like military people. You can ask quite a lot of them because their their reference point on comfort is different to other people. So, mm. sleeping on a roll mat on the top of a mountain <clears throat> is actually fun. You know, it's like how most of them like they're spending their time. So we can ask a lot more of people. Um, and we we were in Nepal uh, in May, reinstalling a hydroelectric dam that had been down for three years. So this whole valley was without power from the last earthquake because none of the other none of the other NGOs could get up there because the roads were shut. So we're like, well, we'll walk it up. So we, we broke it all down, we man-packed it, and we yomped up the hill. Um, <laughs> Just turn this towards you. Sorry. There you go, sorry. And we yomped up the hill and reinstalled this uh, hydro dam. And then we reconnected 2,500 people to power that they hadn't had for three years. The kids were having to read by burning little kerosene lamps, which apparently is like 20 cigarettes a day to a kid. Um, so there's a mega feel-good about the job. Mm. And, you know, you're up in the mountains in Nepal. It's also it's a good place to be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, how, do you, how, do you, how does... Um how does the team decide on what to respond to and what to not? Is there a criteria? How do you measure it? How do you say, yeah, because the disaster's gone on all the time, right? Yeah. But it's just the scale of them. Sure. How do you work it out? First thing is, are we needed? Like, can we can we do something meaningful there? We're not going to go just to get, you know, a tick in, the, uh, tick in the box. So is there a need that we can address? Yes. So that's the first thing. So um, then can we get in there? Have we got access? How long can we sustain it for? All, all these kind of things. You know, can we project force into that disaster zone? And there's loads of different variables. 
So as soon as something happens, so Mexico's just been hit. The uh, the team in the ops room they run up a, an ISR information situation report. Sorry, initial situation report, and that's all of the normal kind of military stuff you'd expect in a uh, a situation report. You know what, when, where, how, um, distance to travel. Can we get access? What's the security situation like? What's happened to the people? Can we bring things to bear in there? You know, can we afford it? All of those things, and the team comes to me with a briefing, like this is bad. We can help. We should go. Can we go? That's basically it. Um, and there can be quite a lot of political wrangling then. So we're trying to get in with the ministries of interiors of these countries or the, their home offices, mm-hmm. saying that we have this good to go. Can we come? Um, as much of that as we can do beforehand speeds up our response because we want to be there. I'm normally looking to get a record team out the door within 12 hours. So like it's hit. We take a look, a gut feel, and then we've got the record team in the air. And so then we're trying to create recce pull. You know, we don't want to just puke responders into a into a theatre that aren't going to do anything. Mm-hmm. So get the recce out, find out what we need, and send. You know, achieving the maximum with the minimum. It's that military approach that we're yeah. so uh, so used to. But that's what we're really trying to bring to the humanitarian sector because so much money's been wasted. We want to really leverage that human asset. You know, the military approach, uh, output focus, mission first, all that good stuff. Um, but based on intelligence as opposed to just going there so we can say we're there yeah it's an interesting approach um in it's interesting in that uh, i don't know why i the you get charity you get a lot of well it appears that you get a lot of charities which they aren't they aren't that concerned with the economy of scale for what the money's being used for it's being used for the right stuff but Blowing it on, you know, blowing 10k and something, it could have been 5k or the, you know, a bit more time getting people out there to get what exactly the right particular bit of kit is needed, for example, mm. to do the job. And that's my, that's my, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but that's what it appears to me. Maybe that military, that heavy military input, um, is part of that, you know, years of dealing with very restricted resources in the military, um, you know, from a planet perspective. And I mean, you're operating and conducting the task. And then, and then having that inherent uh, knowledge, and yeah, that knowledge to to automatically plan like that. Yeah, you know, to use the minimal resources. Okay, we got five hundred of this, but we only need two hundred. So I, you look, let's just yeah, you know, and if we need three hundred, there, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So you do you, in terms of reaching out and and bridging the gaps with the, the ministries of the interiors and, and the various organisations, you'd have to get permission from. Do you where there's countries that or areas that are have been consistently hit by significant natural disasters over the centuries and thousands of years? Mm. Do you so do you reach out to them before something's happened? Mm. You do, yeah. So you, yeah. you you make you make those. So gaining access is every NGO's battle, um, and and then staying on the roller decks of that ministry interior. So you're on their speed dial if something goes wrong. And again, we're trying to take a military approach to that. So um, we'll look at, go out and do capacity building training for local NGOs or local authorities. Um, Indonesia is a good example. We've just responded. They're, they're national disaster agency. We're looking now to go and provide them with training in their country um, after this disaster. But we could maybe try and do that in Papua New Guinea. So we have no access there. So we try and offer training for their local charities, their NGOs, disaster management, that kind of stuff. 
And as we're out there operating, we're then trying to build that access so that when something happens, we're already part of their planning cycle. Got you. We're doing it in the Caribbean as well. We've been operating this whole year doing capacity building work out there. A bit like when the CIA went and did capacity building for the Taliban back in the day. Capacity building in, in the capacity of the existing organisations in that country at the time already. Yeah, so we've just been out with the um, British Virgin Islands Red Cross and we went out, we took teams out and we were teaching them, mentoring them in incident management, command and control, so that when something happens, they're a little bit better at doing it themselves next time. Mm. Um, and it's great for us, you know, using lots of ex-military people, that, that's quite second nature, that sort of monkey see, monkey do, and now go and do it yourself. Yeah. Um, but it also it helps build our access. So we become part of their planning cycle so that when, when it hits the fan, we're not trying to do it from cold. They know us. We've been part of their planning, and we're and we're straight in. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm assuming most most places are quite receptive of that. Don't really get any headaches. Well, you'd think. I mean, Indonesia's just been smashed twice. Two big um, earthquakes with loads of aftershocks in between, and all of the NGOs got kicked out. Why? Um, because there's lots of things come into it. National pride, tourist seasons. They don't want to, their government doesn't want to get engulfed by the UN or, you know, they want to run their own, run their own battle, if you like. Um, so. Is that to minimize the, is that from you talking about the tourism side of things? Is that because they want to minimize the exposure of we're in a right dire place? Yeah. And if you get all these people in and all these NGOs, they're all advertising they're helping in Indonesia and then mm. our tourism is down the pan for 10 years. Yeah. That's, that's part that of way? it. Oh, God. Um, they want they want the money to stay in their economy, so their NGOs get it. There's a multitude of reasons. Oh, that's fair enough. Um, but also, if you imagine um, we had a big flood here, we wouldn't necessarily want an Indonesian response coming and telling us how to run our flood. So it's about approach. And the big, the mega NGOs, Red Cross, UN, UNICEF, etc., they have a tendency to come in and just drop onto something. So we're trying to tweak that approach. So whilst they were all getting kicked out of Indonesia, we were snuggling up to the National Disaster Agency and we worked through them, capacity building through them. So Who were they? Um, that's a government body in Indonesia. Ah, okay. I didn't yeah. Know. Okay. So just their natural disaster, their national <coughs> natural disaster agency. Yeah. Um, so we worked with them throughout. So whilst they were all getting kicked out, little team Rubicon UK managed to get right in there and do some really good work, outperform the big guys, just because we took a different approach. We weren't sending hundreds of people. We weren't blasting it from the rooftops. We just wanted to make sure the survivors got what they needed and we didn't care about who got the credit for it. Will you still be able to achieve that as, as Team Rubicon grows and gets bigger? Yeah. Will you still be able to, how, how will you achieve that? That, that being able to schnurgle in, softly, softly approach? It's, I mean, it's just about growing the cultures. I mean, we're lucky we're young and we're small. So if we set our operating concepts now in such a way, as we grow, that is how we operate. <clears throat> um, the recce team tends to go in unbranded, gets in the country and then he's beating the streets or she's beating the streets getting around the local agency saying look here we are this is what if we if you need it we can bring more people and um, we're pretty flexible and robust as well we can bring lots of different capabilities to bear so it's about growing the organization always around those small teams mm -hmm. but with the ability if we need to to drive big scale and and put 250 people in if we needed to um the difficulty is as, as we grow how we keep all of the disaster responders suitably engaged and busy because everyone joins to go and do stuff so you know how do we how do we um keep them busy when we might only be sending a team of 10 to a big disaster explain to me again well oh no elaborate on how how that works so you, your your pool of people 
in the UK. Mm. Explain to me, yeah, explain to me how it works. So you got you got a you got a a, a pool of volunteers who who said you like team of will come and do stuff for you. So how how am I? How do I know I'm standby? How what what's the how does it work? So what happens is it you Hugh you sign up you go online you sign up as a volunteer you're registered you come in you do some training so you do an induction domestic operator international operator heat trauma med and then a response course and that's you the fullish you're the most qualified you can be in team rubicon as a disaster responder then you're then you're basically just on a bleeper system a bit like the rnli so you'll go back to your normal day job you might get involved with bits and pieces we're doing you might do continuation training you might do some stuff in your local area um you might come down and deliver training for us but that's all the peacetime stuff. And then when the when the disaster happens, whilst that recce team's in the air, we're sending out a note to all of you that are qualified saying, right, don't start taking time off work yet, but have a Bergen packed and good to go because it looks like we're going to have something. We don't know the numbers yet. We don't know how much because we haven't had the recce. But if you can all have a bag packed at least. Then, excuse me, if you're a self-employed security consultant, you might be able to respond in the first wave. If you're a teacher, you might not be able to. But we do two-week waves. So the uh, wave one, that's your really robust, really resilient people because they're dropping into chaos, into the unknown. We don't know where you're going to be staying necessarily. There could be dead bodies on the floor. There could be public order. There could be follow-on disasters. So that's a that's a very special kind of responder we're sending in there. That's wave one, first two weeks. Wave two, the next two weeks, probably similar. But then after four, four weeks, things are getting a bit more certain. So it's a different kind of responder maybe for wave three, four, and five. And we're looking at the total op about six weeks. So, you know, you'll you'll do your two-week uh, rotation out there. You'll get relieved in place. It's a two-week rotation. Yeah. We, yeah. we promise volunteers that we'll get them from their front door to us trained out and back within two weeks. Oh, you do pre-deployment training as well? As yeah, some mission-specific okay. training. So you'll you'll be trained anyway, generically, for a response. But then if it's a specific place we're going into, so Indonesia, you'll get a cultural update. You know, this is a disaster. This is what you're going to be facing. This is what you need. That could last three hours. It could last two days, depending on how complicated the situation we're going into. So you're getting specific training on the way out the door. That could be on the way up to Heathrow in the back of the van. Mm. You know, it's pretty dynamic. And then, uh, but we do promise to get you back within two weeks. If you're available to stay longer, you know, so you're, let's say you're a security consultant and you're on your six weeks back from Iraq. <clears throat> It could be that we deploy you for four or five weeks if you want to, but we do make a promise that two weeks out and back. Man, that sounds alley. <laughs> it, <laughs> sounds it really is. Alley. <laughs> I mean, the circumstances are you going to help people, and I wish that, you know, those people weren't in that situation and yeah. needed help, but still. <laughs> it's the best, it's the best thing I've ever done, honestly. It's, it's so well, cool. the, the recce team, are they an, a permanent in-house unit? So we've got a global response uh, manager. He's an ex-Fusiliers SART major. And he lives he lives in his camper van outside the office just ready for this shit. He loves it. Um, he, he, so he's the first guy out the door always. And he's just dying to get out. Um, single, just him and his dog. Um, just loves it. So he's the first guy out. And he either takes a volunteer or one of our response interns with him. Because the speed we've got to go, it's normally a full-time person out first. Um, he, he deployed to Jakarta or into Lombok for the earthquake after the summer, came back for two weeks and we deployed him straight to Salawesi. Um, he's just, Salawesi. the tsunami's just happened in Palu, the other Indonesian one. Okay. 
Um, and he's just been, he's just come back and we're like, mate, where's next? <laughs> so yeah, the, the recce team, if it's just two, it's them. Sometimes we might want to send a recce team with teeth. So we make some assumptions that we're probably going to need, um, some drone operators and we're going to need some, um, <clears throat> needed assessors. So like a, they might send like a four man recce team so they can actually start achieving stuff on the ground as well. Um, it all depends on the situation. You use the drones just for check um, for what rescue? Um, yeah, building situational awareness. So the way the way we like to operate is life is normal. Something happens and life is just fucked. And then whilst everyone's figuring out who's going to be in charge and this and that, that's our space. Like when there's chaos, when there's nothing, light teams in, recce map the disaster, figure out where the the need is the greatest, map that, share that information with the other agencies, drop down. Um, community level infrastructure so power water and connectivity people need to tell, text the world now and tell them they're safe and that has a massive mental health tail so the quicker we can connect people to WhatsApp the better it is for their long term recovery um, in our lifetime uh, connectivity become a human right I'm absolutely convinced of it so, say, hang on, say that again if you say that again about the quicker you can get the text the, the, the better is it you know you see, you see um, terrorist attack in London People are checking in safe on Facebook, aren't they? Or checking in safe in the Nepal earthquake. The longer that it is between the disaster and then being able to check in, we can see that there's a longer term effect in their mental health and their emotional recovery. So the quicker they've connected and told nah. people they're safe, yeah, the better it is. What is that? Have there been studies? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ, it's crazy. Yeah, isn't it? so it's frightening how much it's impacting. And, and it's you know, Paul Godonis in Marsat. So they yeah. they supply our comms kit and our connectivity. So we can basically come down. We put renewable energy source down. We put a, a, a Wi-Fi mast up, and we put water um, purification down. And so the community level can come to us, and we'll build um, shelter for them. So we just get everyone together, and then and then we're moving on again. So mapping the disaster, creating infrastructure, clearing the routes, and then letting the big guys come through. Yeah. Ten, within ten, in the space of 10 years, we've gone from right disaster, food and water, we need people, food, water and shelter. Wi-Fi. Food, water, shelter, Wi-Fi. <laughs> and it's, and it's, it's serious. Yeah. That's serious. Maslow's hierarchy it, of needs has completely it, changed. <laughs> it is, I, I mentioned before, it is frightening yeah. how much, things have, are changing it's turning on its head absolutely it's turned on its head and people don't realize yeah they don't realize turning on its head that is i'll have to look i don't want to look at those studies I, I do wonder if you if you polled a series of disaster victims at the time you're never gonna do it it's unethical but like okay you can have a roof or you can have the internet <laughs> what do you want <laughs> yeah it also depends on the country of course it does yeah so i mean everything depends on the country Oh, um, yeah. if, if it's a tourist spot where people are dislocated from their life, but if it's Indonesia, like, I don't know, um, Salawesi, for instance, that's not a tourist spot. Everyone that affected was from that space. <clears throat> the connectivity was less important there, but still important. Mm. How, uh, how do you, uh, sorry, kit wise. So mm. I'm a volunteer and I got my bleeper. Um, what I take it, I need to be, it's all my own kit, self-sustained. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we give you PPE. We give you deployment kit. Oh, okay. Um, How to what to what level? Like in, in, in terms of what 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 Indonesia, mm. uh, pa Palu Palu Palu. What did you give to those guys? So on the, the first wave, they're basically getting um, helmet, uh, gloves, um, protective top layer, <clears throat> the grey shirt we wear. We're called grey shirts. So they get issued some of those when they deploy. 
they're normally bringing their own um, outdoor trousers and uh, and boots and that kind of stuff and their own warmers. Uh, we can't start dishing out Arcteryx warmers just yet. Um, and then we're giving obviously all the hardware they need. That might be drones, computing, comms kit, um, damage assessment stuff. Whatever it is they need hardware-wise, we're giving them as they deploy. Mm-hmm. And and we're giving basic PPE. So you get your, your helmet, your glasses, gloves, uh, comms kit, all that kind of stuff. Um, in those kind of disasters, how uh, is there any, when are the other NGOs going? Are, the, are there any NGOs, any organisations outside of the ones that are part of that country that's happened in that act as the jurisdiction or the, 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 the yeah, the jurisdiction, they obviously make sure no one's being flipping lunatics and uh, a sort of that controlling, uh, yeah, uh, not controlling, um, what, what do you call it, coordinating element. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing this change. So normally that's the United Nations. So the UN, okay. um, OCHA, that's their humanitarian coordination body, um, they drop in and that's like a government dropping on top of a country and they coordinate everything through clusters. So there'd be a logistics cluster, a transport cluster, a comms cluster. And so if your NGO is logistics focused, you go and you get involved in the logistics cluster. And the UN is then coordinating all of the different NGOs and saying, right, Hugh, you take your team and you do that tomorrow. Come back and report in. Right, you, Rich, you're taking your team over there. So that's done normally by the UN. What we're seeing is, and this is what's exciting for us, um, I say exciting, it's what's provoking thought in how we operate, is the UN is not getting the access to these disasters because countries are getting more resilient. They have to. You can't keep relying on aid. You can't keep relying on people to come and bail you out. You've got to invest in your own resilience. And Indonesia, international assistance not required. Philippines, international assistance not required. Um, Indonesia, again, international assistance not required because they didn't want the UN body dropping on them and taking over. And then the Red Cross, because then it's a free-for-all. So they have to authorise it then. The countries have to authorise it. You can't just turn up. And once the UN's deployed, it's a free-for-all. All the NGOs are coming and they're getting into those clusters and the country has lost control of that disaster then. So what we're seeing now is they're saying no and they're letting people on a case-by-case basis. Okay. So as as Team Rubicon and that approach I described to you is we're working in with these national agencies to do what they're saying. You know, we're, we're taking a humble position, but we're sending really skilled, really robust, <clears throat> really resilient people to do it, but we're doing it for them. Like, that's getting some real traction and that might be the way forward. So the sector's changing, you know, humanitarian response is changing. People are saying, you know, what's the UN going to be in the future? What does this mean for the Red Cross, UNICEF, Oxfam, you know, those... There's mega NGOs, the cartel almost, the big 13 at the top. Well, you used the key word there. I, you, they, they will, I would assume they would try not to let that happen. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> there'll, yeah. There'll be a criteria brought in where if, it, if they if they assess that a disaster's got a certain level of impact in a country in a certain way, that they'll go regardless because the decision-making uh, capability of that country could be compromised. Mm. Well, and there is that. I hope not. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. Mate, hey, there's corruption yeah. and everything, bud. There's corruption <laughs> and everything. Yeah. No, it is. I, I, mate, I, I like the sound of it. It's really, it's really cool. Um, with, with deploying, so my, my bleeper goes off. Mm. Do I have to head to, for the train? Let's say I've got to come in for a few hours briefing or, or days or whatever. Is there, there's a HQ you go to, a training ring, or is it, is it, is that again a case by case basis on the on the design? So far, it's always been so. We've got the operations centres down by Stonehenge, um, 
Stonehenge is the only reference point. We're in the middle of nowhere. So what normally happens is the uh, the response team come, they get there, they get issued the kit, they get the mission-specific briefing, however long that needs to be, and then we're taking them to Heathrow. We used to bring them back for uh, demobilising there as well, but actually we're starting to do that more dynamically in Heathrow. I'm going to cough as well. Is this ale making you burp? Yeah. yeah. It's making me burp. It's nice though. It's yeah, it's nice, yeah. Um, Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> so burping. Burping, yeah, burping, yeah. Yeah, so we're... We're we're trying to make the thing more flexible because the the grey shirts, our volunteers, are our single greatest asset. And the easier we make it for them to go and do good things abroad, the better. So we're, how we're going to take that mission-specific training, that demobilizing, it's, it's in flux a minute. But it's in the minute, it's in Wiltshire. Of course, the problem is if you're mobilizing from Scarborough, you've got to come past Heathrow to Wiltshire, get your mission-specific, and then back to Heathrow. Um but you know we're a work in progress. We're not perfect yet, but we're getting pretty good. Mm. The oh, oh, what the hell is going on? I lost my train of thought. Yeah, one second. <laughs> Grey shirts. Mm. So you volunteers. Is it? Do you? I'm not imagining. Well, you may actually find it hard to get volunteers. Are there enough volunteers and have a bigger pool? Have you got a big enough pool that you want at the minute for the size of and the capability of the organisation? Yeah. You're I up. mean, we could we could probably do with, um, I can tell you exactly if I went to my, our op planning, we worked out how many short we are at the moment to deliver our operational offer this year. So we need about 100 more international responders trained up. Now, for 100 responders at any one time, that means we probably need 1,000 because it works about... Well, in the States, it's 10 to 1. So there's 10 of you for every one we need to deploy because you've all got jobs and things. When the bleeper goes off, out of those 10 people, one comes forward. We're seeing a much higher level of return from uh, from our responders. We're looking at about 3 to 1, 4 to 1. So we're, we're really investing heavily in training the group we've got before we drive massive scale in the volunteer base. So we're really professionalizing those we've got. I want... Uh, I want Team Rubicon just to be synonymous with that military professionalism that we were so proud of when we were in the British military. So that every time it lands in a theatre somewhere around the world, that people know, oh, these guys are slick. So I'd rather have uber quality than massive, massive numbers. How do you maintain the quality and monitor it? You just, you've got to keep the rhythm going. Training, engagement. We we don't have a good enough offer in the UK yet. And we're work, working what that What do you mean offer? That. What, what you- like what do we do in the UK? This is our home soil, um, but we're a resilient com- country. So we saw flooding in Wales a couple of weeks ago. They didn't need us. We saw flooding in Scotland. They don't need us. We're lucky we live in the UK because we don't have disasters. Yeah. Um, but to keep that level of professionalism engagement, and also our gracious, they want to do stuff. Um, it's like you don't join the army to not go on ops. It's the same, our gracious are joining to do stuff. So we're looking now at... <laughs> What do we do in the UK that's really meaningful, that's gritty and part of our brand, means something to the volunteers, but keeps the professionalism up? Um, and we're working up a series of different ideas at the minute. You know, can we start um, providing something for the homeless around constructing shelters? I don't know. Can we start um, working with community groups, you know, schools? You know, for instance, uh, was there something, if we were around at the time, we could have done for the Grenfell community? Could we have gone in, got that school back up and running quicker? I don't know. These are things that we're looking at. You know, what what do we what do we become in the UK? Because my my first year here has been focused on the international offer, because that's what uh, we really had to focus on. 
we're really getting pretty good at that now. So now what what are we going to be in the UK? Where our donors live, you know, what are we going to do to our home front? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. It's all sorts of all sorts of things in there. Yeah. Opportunities is is just identifying them. Mm. Um do do you do your volunteers are they all multi-skilled? Or do you, would you have a volunteer, when a volunteer, volunteers, do you look at them and think, okay, we should primarily train them up on, I don't know, communications or, or operational planning or not planning as a bad example, mm. or medical skills or I don't know what. So, yeah, I mean, you, you come in, everyone comes and does the same induction and the same domestic course. Okay. But then, much like when you join the military, there's branches you can go off into. So you can be a responder, and then you're going to be trauma med, a bit of comms, a bit of drone. Or you might specialise fully in drone operator, or fully in med. Um, and then it's how we construct, we call them strike teams, which is basically sections. <coughs> so then we're looking at, when the disaster happens, how we construct that strike team that's got all the right skill sets in it to go and deliver the effect. So we might have eight different people with two or three different skill sets each. Okay. So we have the full offer in one small punchy section. Um, but you can come in, you can stop at domestic, so you can decide international is not for me. I'm a domestic operator. You can do that. You can be a, a trainer, so you can deliver training. You can be a comms, med. You know, There's various different things that you can really deepen the hold in. At the moment, most of the people are coming in because they want to be international responders. That's yeah. that's what we're seeing most of. What about um, command structure within within <coughs> within those strike teams? Exactly the way we saw in the military. We're we're not reinventing the wheel. Um, you'll have some kind of leadership team on the ground coordinating the whole response, mm -hmm. um, and the strike teams are reporting back into that. And each team has a team leader, a team two IC, one in charge of logs, one in charge of plans, one in charge of comms. So everyone has a role within it, and there is a, a clear command structure that happens all the way through that, through the team on the ground, up to our op centre, which eventually comes up to me, which eventually goes up to our board of trustees. So, you know, it uh, it's well governed and it's well led. Hmm. I say it's well led, I lead it. <laughs> it's really great, actually. It couldn't be any better. Than it be the best it's just ever. perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. <clears throat> what a... Have you, is it, were you talking about, um, you were talking about in the, in the US, that is their, their model is that they, they need, if they need to deploy a hundred, hundred people on the ground, you said 10 to one. So they need to be drawn from a, a pool of a thousand. Mm -hmm. That's that you're basically talking about there about the response rate you get. Yeah, I can go. Yeah. Like, or, or not. It's an interesting ratio of that because it's the same as, it's the same as here in the UK, in the military, isn't it? So for every infantry soldier that deploys, there's 10 behind. There's oh, 10. Yeah, yeah, see. There's 10 ramps. <laughs> Do we say ramps? <laughs> say ramps. There's, uh, there's 10 rear echelon masterful, <laughs> fearful people that, uh, that need, that, that enable that from mm. clerks to logistics, you know. Sure. So it's, it's that's 10 to 1. Um, and it's 3 to 1 over in the UK. Why do you think that ratio is higher? <sighs> or better? What, why we've got a more successful why, yeah, why? Um I just think uh, when when you and again you said their their approach to veterans and if just the way they embrace a veteran community in the US is so much mm. more positive. Why do you think? I haven't really thought it through much right now. Um, we can look at 
you know, cultural differences. We can look at just sheer scale. So, I mean, when you've got 90,000 people, some of them will join and then get quite dis- disengaged. We've got 600 trained people, 3,000 on the books, but 600 trained people. And they're training, so they're really engaged with it. Um, and they're build, not building their lives around it, but they do structure their lives around this. Team Rubicon is a big part of most of our volunteers' lives. And yeah. I think that, and also, when the states are responding, they're normally responding in their hometown. And whilst we're all doing this um, for the good of survivors, that's what we're built around, there's also a lot of adventure in where we're going. So we're sending teams out to Indonesia and Nepal in the wake of massive disasters. And we've all, well, I say we've all, those that have served and the people that come to Team Rubicon are like-minded to those that served. They tend to have an adventurous rat inside them that needs feeding. And so the response rate is quite high because we're often going places that are feeding that adventurous rat whilst doing good things for people. Mm. Yeah, I, that, um, yeah, you, you, and the engagement would be a big part of that ratio, wouldn't it, like you said? Yeah, mm. you're right. Not, because you've got le- less people... You can you as an organisation can engage them more and keep them more motivated with it and more yeah. such done. And I don't know everyone's name, of course. I haven't met every single one of them, but I talk to them every two weeks by a video blog, and you know they probably feel quite close to Team Rubicon. What, what do you mean you talk to them? Go on. As in, I do a vlog, I do a video update to them every fortnight. So like, and I just like we're doing now. I just sit there; it's quite unplanned. I just tell them what's going on. You know, this is what I'm thinking. This is what the team's doing. This is what's going on. Yeah. I say a load of thank yous to them. You know. So they probably feel a bit closer to Team Rubicon UK because there isn't many of them and they're getting the full download unplanned from me every two weeks, just my lips bumping along on camera. Where in the States there's 90,000, they probably feel like a lot smaller piece of the massive jigsaw. Yeah, and they would, I suppose they would get, if they would get deployed a lot less because there are more of them. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they do a lot of pre-planned community work. They, yeah. I mean, they do their big deployments when disasters hit in the in the US, but most of the time they're doing community level volunteering as Team Rubicon US at the disasters, even outside of disasters. Like what? Like what? No. I mean, anything that benefits veteran or the community. Um, so in Detroit, they're taking because De- uh, Detroit suffering from urban decay, you know, mass poverty, really like abject poverty. So they're they're treating that as disasters. They're doing a lot of work <clears> in Detroit to try and help. The, uh, the community's there. You'll see them in painting schools, um, drop-in centres, soup kitchens, whatever it is. If it's delivering benefit to the US and furthering veteran culture, uh, TRUSA can cover it because they're just so big and there's so many of them. Helps generate funds as well, doesn't it? Yeah, because their the brand's always out there and they're showing, you know, they're showing how positive an impact serving in the military can be because they've got all these great people out there just doing great things, not getting paid for it. Mm. Is that a is that an angle that the UK could take? Um, uh, and be as successful as they are with it. We're a different nation, aren't we? You know that. And first of all, I want to really cement that we're disaster responders. So I want to I want to really cement our brand. We're disaster response first. Um, I want to be known for that. And you know, we go where others can't get because we're willing to. We push. We push. You know, that gritty really tenacious organisation. So first of all, we've got to focus on building that and I've got to find out what in the UK also feeds that. If, let's say, we explode and we get to 30,000, 40,000, now there's a chance Team Rubicon could be the British Legion in the 21st century with active groups of veterans in their communities doing great stuff, drinking together, socialising together, working with each other. That's down the road, maybe. 
and then the the projects can become different they can become more community sort of led at the moment i think we need to stay a bit more pointed a bit more punchy um in how we approach it so we don't just dilute who we are so people are like well what are you are you a welfare organization are you disaster responders you know so we're, we're still young we're building is that uh, <coughs> is it it must be then quite difficult to to to, to fundraise compared to other charitable organizations that deal mm. with homeland stuff yeah um how do you do at the minute how do you fundraise at the moment so nick parker that he was the general that bought it here. Yeah. He got two and a half million pounds out of the LIBOR funding. That was the when the London banks got fined. All that money got given out to charities. Mm-hmm. So he got two and a half million for that, which was like the seed capital. That's what got Team Rubicon up and running. And now um, we're doing it the normal charity way. So we all that philanthropic, we apply to trust and foundations, major donors, we do events. But I'm also looking to see how we can, sorry, I meant this, this ale. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Give me another one of these. Oh, yeah. Who, who's, who's, the, who's the brewer? Marston's. Uh, it's nice, Marston's, but yeah. 5.7% yeah. as well. <laughs> um, Is it? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'll be slurring by the end of this. Um, but, you know, I, I want I want Team Rubicon to be at the front of many things. I've got big dreams and ambitions for it in how we respond to disasters, but also how we raise money. And I don't want us to be one of these charities that's always got their hand out and always asking for cash. So, as much sustainability as we can generate ourselves. So the kit that we've developed to drop in, I want to be able to sell that and then gift all of the profit into Team Rubicon. If we're doing capacity building work abroad. The, the kit that what, sorry? So, you know, I talked about those renewable energy things that we can drop into community centres. Yeah. Um, our team's developed a lot of that work. So that's kit that is unique to us at the moment through a series of suppliers. So I want to be able to sell that as well to different uh, different organisations, to different businesses, and then gift all of the profit back into Team Rubicon so that we start to create our own funding. Then maybe we start doing resilience consultancy. Maybe we start delivering training for other NGOs. I was going to say, you're going to yeah. have a lot of knowledge there. That's you know, right. Have a lot of knowledge. And a lot of that knowledge, even though you responded to disasters overseas, um, uh, could be, I am thinking out loud here, so hmm. ignore me completely, could be um, in terms of, giving back to the communities and local communities in the UK, I don't know, for, for areas that are, are frequently hit by flooding, for example, or could be, um, a flood is just an example, mm. you know, just passing on the knowledge about how to deal with disaster, how to right. deal with this, to the, to the councils and to you know, yeah. schools, Joe blogs, yeah. you know, uh, like you say, you, I, bet, I, I bet a lot of your volunteers now flipping well out to sort out a flooded house. <laughs> yeah. Or, or one, <laughs> I don't yeah. you know. I think that there's all that experience that can be brought to bear in the UK. So how to do it. Yeah. So then we, we start, for businesses, if we charge for that and then gift all of the profit back to Team Rubicon, we're starting to create our own income as well. So we'll still always be charitable, but I want to show people that we're trying to do this for ourselves as well so that my aspiration would be that we we run ourselves out of money we've earned and then every penny so if you give me 10 quid every penny of that will go to a disaster victim that's where i want us to get to so 100 percent of our running costs we've had to go and earn that ourselves and then all donations end up benefiting a survivor somewhere mm-hmm. i've got something flashing to my head we can talk after but... <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> i'm not gonna say anything someone will steal it and you'll we'll, miss out we'll talk off mike <laughs> you'll, you'll miss out yeah goodness me do you um have you managed to deploy any of the stuff? Do you? Can you? So yourself? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I was always been a big believer in you can't lead from the back. Um, sometimes I used to try and lead a little bit too far forward. And, yeah. uh, angry corporals elbowing me in the face to tell me to get back a bit. But <laughs> um, I went out to Nepal at the beginning of the year on a on a pre-planned operation. That one I told you about where we took the micro hydro up the hill. Oh yeah. Um, How big to, was that, by the way? I mean, it's just parts, big pipes, and yeah, because yeah. the the old hydro was there, but it was broken. So we we're just taking up the parts and solar panels, and it was a fair bit of kit. <laughs> it was a fair bit of kit. Um, I've been out to the British Virgin Islands in the aftermath, and then I'm due to go out to Indonesia in the next few weeks. So there's no point in me being part of the recce. I've got work to do back here. I'm better used back here for the first part, but I always want to go. I want to be present for the responders. I want to, I want them to see that I'm just as happy filling a sandbag as I am sitting back in the ops room. There's a lot of work that I can do out there as well. So then once it started happening, I can get out and start doing diplomacy type work with yeah. the Ministry of Interiors, different NGOs, um, that kind of stuff. So I always want to be out in the ops. How many um, how many things have you deployed to, not you, sorry, I've team Rubicon responded to in the year that you've been with them? Ooh, so Caribbean and the two Indonesian disasters they're the three response ops we've also done ops into haiti back into the caribbean and nepal what was the most challenging this this one this deployment into indonesia right now just because the scale of it you know the the uh the ground liquefied so there's all these communities were built on um <clears throat> ground that wasn't solid so when the tsunami hit the ground liquefied and just ate up communities like what do you mean it wasn't solid? What? It was like, it's not hardcore. It was like dust and mud. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, like compacted down. It'd be like the old Afghan tracks, remember? Like hard sand. They've got houses and stuff built on them. That the whole ground, this aerial footage of it just turned to liquid and just ate up houses. Potentially 5,000 people eaten up down there. Really? Yeah. So there was, there's 2,000 confirmed dead. There's 5,000 missing. Oh, my God. So... Our teams are landing on. There's dead bodies everywhere. It's public order. It's politically really difficult. So for us back at home, you know, it's a really challenging environment to try and navigate our recce team through, mobilizing the onward response, raising the cash. You know, it was really difficult because we were constantly under the risk of the Indonesians asking us to leave. And I didn't want to raise money we couldn't then give to disaster victims. So it was this constant balancing act of generating enough attention to raise money without generating too much attention that we got kicked out of country whilst worrying about what our teams are seeing out there and the frustration that they could just see devastation and wanted help and we weren't necessarily allowed to send the help and that you know that's one of the challenges of leadership and uh, I'm like I've got a really really good field ops director called Oslane he's an ex uh, ex green jacket um and he he worked it beautifully and the response guy I told you about Paul he, uh, yeah, his efforts out there were second to none. So that oh, was the most challenging. Paul. Paul Taylor. Oh, sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he was the fusilier that lives in the van outside right, of his yeah, dog. Yeah. <laughs> Field director. What, what, does, what does he do then? Um, the ops officer in old military language. Got um, but because we inherited everything from the states, he's the field ops director. Which is very American, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But he's the he's what generates the teams, the training, and runs the op. Um, he could run three ops at once. So it's the ops room. <clears throat> so he's in charge of all of that. What comms do you have on the ground in terms of between the teams and from the teams to your, to your, your recce HQ element? Yeah. Um, 
So you got mobile phone first. Yeah. And then we we take Began out, which is provided by Inmarsat as well. It's just Began. Began. Satellite communication. So okay. we can take our own little satellite dishes which connect us. Um we use blue jeans, which is a bit like Skype. So put the Inmarsat kit kit down, that connects us, and then we attach the uh the laptops to that signal and we communicate. I've had better comms in Team Rubicon than I ever, ever had in the Marines. <laughs> yeah, I can talk to teams all over the world with like 4G quality pitches. I was like, this is oofing. Because yeah. the Inmarsat kit so much better than that Bowman stuff that we <laughs> Try before Bowman, it was Clansman. <laughs> before Bowman. When... Oh, we, we still use Batco in Team Rubicon. <laughs> no, you In fact, when, we, when I deployed in Eric 4 on 2006, that was we were on. That's right. We were on Clansman then. We were yeah. just Bowmanizing through 0405. Yeah, we? we had some of the some of the units had some of the subunit like I think we had mortars had um, Bowman and some you know some of the, the command the commanders had it. Uh, but yeah, the rest was Clansman. Oh, sorry, me. Yeah, cheers, mate. I want to drink some more ale and oh, burp, burp a bit more. Well, I reckon it was just that one there because I'm all right with it. <laughs> And mine ain't, mine's not 5.7% either. This one's 4.6. <laughs> smashed by the end of it. <laughs> um, yeah, fucking Glandon. He's like, yeah, the old military, military comms get, you don't get, yeah, you, you it's on a 320. With this, <laughs> if you put a, a dipole up, you will be able to speak to, uh, and we were in the Falklands at the time, you will yeah. be able to speak to, we got comms to a, a base in Newcastle. They're like, fuck, I, I can't even, I can't get anything. Yeah. I tell you what I can do, get the world service on this frequency. And that's what I can't, I can't <laughs> you could, on a 320, you get world service with it, mate. <laughs> yeah. Now nah, we've got, uh, we've got booming comms with, you know, uh, video screens direct from theatre to Oh, really? Us. Is that yeah. all through MySat? All through MySat, yeah. They got some alley We haven't been anywhere they can't get us comms. We were at the top of this mountain in Nepal and just this tiny little began connected us right well, they've got f- 15 satellites 14 satellites yeah 14 satellites a lot of satellites this mate no mate it's the hot bomb hot, is that what it's called mm. I was a mortarman as well so I like it well yeah <laughs> <laughs> bombs in the air where do you want them yeah but, no, no, I was gonna make, I was gonna make, was gonna make a crude joke then. Really, it doesn't matter. <laughs> My mum's gonna listen to this. So. Like, <laughs> have you, have you more, more the platoon commander? Yeah. How was that? Yeah. Hang on. Did you? Did, did you go into that po- post after your platoon commander slot in Afghan, or did you go? You kind of gone straight into more platoon commander. No, no. So no, I was a yeah. close combat troop commander yeah. here at five. Came back, went to Limson training, then Optag. Then I went and did my mortars course, went back to Fort 2 Commando as OC Mortars, then deployed as the Ops 2, like the Ops Officer, because mm-hmm. we didn't need an OC Mortars in theatre, and then ended up on the ground taking a like a ragtag group of, it was a company-sized group pulled of multiples from all over the place because uh, we were getting so thinly spread. So I ended up as I a... I know that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> so I ended up as a... Acting company commander sounds too grand. It was just a bloke on the ground with a load of people around <laughs> him. <laughs> um, Which yeah. tour was this? Harry 14. So ah. we took over from Three Power again then. Okay. Oh, okay. yeah. That was go. 2011. So they did the winter into 2011, then we did the summer. Yeah, I did. Natalie North. Yeah, I was. No, you must, yeah. So I've, we've, yeah. I've ripped with you twice. Yeah, twice. Yeah. yeah. Twice. Where was your second tour? Where was the, where was, sorry, your unit's second tour? Did you do, did they do three? Did four, two, do three tours? 
they did Herrick 9 as well. Yeah, we've been after hours. Yeah, yeah. but I was... Um, Tra- uh, Limston. Limston, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I did. I don't think they ripped with us. We were in, on 2008, we were in Kandahar doing strike off out there. Yeah, so we ripped... Well, I say we, I wasn't there. They ripped with you again. So they I were the back group reserve doing the Hilo assaults. Um, ah. Two para were in Sangin, weren't they? Yes, and they f- were. Four yes, five were, commando yeah. went and ripped with them. Yeah, yeah. And four two went and ripped with you guys. Mm-hmm. Incoming in all of those places. Yeah, in, in incoming. Incoming, yeah. yeah. There for, for a bit. Mm. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's always struck me with the Marines. <clears throat> Don't look at me like that. I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting. I'm being nice. Do you you know how many commandos I've got lined up? Because we can speak. (laughs) Who's the host? (laughs) Loads of them. I don't know what it is. I mean, I got they got some brilliant. I got a lot of. Well, everyone, everyone, I, I like they ever got on. It comes on. They're they're brilliant. And I was looking at. I was looking at the schedule. Um. Yesterday, it's like, commando, 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 commando. <laughs> the, mate, the reg blokes, I hate him. Yeah, well, when I started off, I thought, I've I, invariably, my network of awesome people is going to be power reg. Mm. I've got to, I need to, uh, it can't be like that. As much as I want to get them all, I've got to, I've got to vary it. No, it's like, they're, they're <laughs> need to rocking all shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to line up the whole of three fire next, next, next year. Um, yeah. Why uh, you always you always you always wearing a shoe kit? Yeah, stay pos- what is that all about? Stay positive, stay no. safe, mate. <laughs> what is, oh God, he used to break me. They look, you look too smart. Just, no, get different boots on. Wait. Stop. I'll, I'll go with like. Is yeah. that a rule? You can't you can't go outside of your shoe kit. I mean, <sighs> like we'd always buy our own boots and. Uh, no way. But like, when you guys came in in '06 mm. and took over, when you're on Herrick Five. When they rocked up, they were all in the same kit. Oh, yeah. But, like, they were in the same kit. We got issued good issued kit for Afghans. Yeah, we got issued like Mindles and yeah. Magnums and stuff. For, for get Oxo. rid of them. Get um, rid of them and get your, your uh, what was I with? KSBs, I bet, weren't you? No, Every power KSBs, wore KSBs. KSBs. Um, got a pair of AKUs now. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was I wearing? Oh, man. We were all wearing them. It's a, uh, not Brasher. Something super lights. Brasher do super lights. Yeah. This other company did super lights. I can't remember what I was wearing, but it weren't fucking issue stuff. No, nah, mate, we were in the uh, <laughs> the Mindles. Stay passive, stay safe, no, mate. No way. I did, no. I've got a bit on Herit 5, though. I did scrim my helmet. I did put the netting over my helmet on Herit 5. Because all the lads Because you want it to look like us. Well, someone said stay Everyone Ali, does, stay, Ali stay safe. Stay, or something. Stay, uh, <laughs> that was it. No, Ali Nassim. Ali Nassim saves lives. Ali Nassim. That, uh, that was Stu Tootle, yeah. CEO. Ali Nassim. Remember, remember, fellas, Ali Nassim saves lives. <laughs> Um, yeah, but you said it purely just because he, it's, he, he's just a cool thing to say. He's just a clever, clever very capable commander. Yeah. And he knew he'd get the blows going. And it, but it's stuck, hasn't it? It was, isn't it? Ali Nassage. It's, it's, it's in books and everything. They even say it in the core, like, Ali Nassage lies. Fuck off, you Ali. Do you know where Ali comes from? The word. So, uh, in the Radvan, back in the day, the yeah. Reg deployed, that's uh, 50s or 60s, I'm probably getting that wrong, but mm. at some point then, Mega sunny, and he's deploying berries. And he used to, this is where the alley berry came from. You know, it's like pulled right down oh, like a cap. Like a Yorkshire flat cap. Right yeah. down like a cap, yeah. An alley berry. Because when you pull it right down, keeps the sun uh, out your eyes. And alley you. means shade. Uh, alley berry, hey, shade. I never knew that. There you go. Yeah, yeah, I never knew that. That's what I heard anyway. 
<laughs> no, no, that's, no, yeah. That's yeah. what we uh, Ali Berry, shade, because we can give shade your eyes. Ali so Berry. Ali, Ali like Berry. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's, I, I double checked that. I was think I, I remember that, that fact yesterday, but I couldn't remember where it was it deployed to. And I just remembered it's there. Radvan. <laughs> Radvan. Yeah, awesome. Um, do you get many females volunteering? Yeah. Um, our demographic, you know, if we're pulling from the military, obviously the military demographic, it was predominantly male. That's natural, but we've got a really good representation of females. And we got some absolutely oh, nails ones as well. Um, there's some news has hit today. I've just realised I read. Uh, oh, SF. Oh, well, m- women on the front line. They said yeah. going into infantry units and said including SF. Yeah. If, they, if they obviously pass the well, test. Yeah, that. I mean, the Royal Marines has put uh, female shower blocks in and good to go. Well, uh, good to go. The world's changing. Well, huh? What do you think? You know, the world is changing. We're going to have an intelligent conversation about this now. You can't avoid it. I'm not going to. <laughs> I, um, I, uh, I think the world is changing and we have to, the military has to move with that times. I do think there's a lot of pain to come with it though. You were a para. I was a Royal Marine. <clears throat> we know what, how important living together is. That team cohesion, that fighting unit. We know that's important. When you start segregating that by gender, there's a lot of learning that's going to have to happen now to maintain that fighting cohesion with split living accommodation, with the natural male-female interactions that are different to that when it's two paras and two bootneck males. So, you know, I'll be honest, I wasn't a fan of the core and the paras accepting females. I, but I do understand, you know, I'm a modern person, I, I lead an organisation that the world does have to change. I just think it's going to affect the fighting capability of those two units <clears throat> and indeed the infantry units while we figure out how to make it work properly. There's also a thing, you know, um, a female's got to pass the commando course. Um, let's, excuse me, let's wait and see if that happens. Um, Hold the phone. Oh, don't get me on this. Man. Hang on. I'm on my second ale. <laughs> Hang on. Pip Tattersall. There's females have passed. Nah, mate. There's a lot of, no, of rumours around uh, that. <laughs> I wasn't there. I mean, Pip did pass, and she's got a green lid. I thought it was more than one. Nah. Pip, Pip okay. Tattersall's the only... Well, I'm I'm a little bit out of touch now. She was the only one I'm aware of. She passed just before I joined. But no one's come close ever since. So, you know... Did she have to do it with the full kit that the males did? Yeah. Yeah, she had okay. the full thing. Um, but no one's come close. And so what happens if... Let, okay, let's say 15 females all get through Royal Marines training. Mm-hmm. How how did that 15 disperse into the brigade and become part of sections across the bridge? There's a lot of thinking that has to happen here. I'm sure there's some pretty smart people doing this thinking. Um, and I'm a feminist, you know. I, I, I don't think there are. I think yeah, <laughs> I don't think there are. I, I think because it's moving faster than what than they can plan for. Because society is moving faster. Yeah, yeah. But the, the military has to be representative of society. I'm a big believer in that. I just think at that very sharp end of the spear, where you're closing with the enemy and killing it, that that has to be thought through. Because if you're not living together, sharing together, all that stuff, you know, lads go to strip joints together. If they can't go to strip joints, because then it's not inclusive enough to the the female members of the section, like, can you see all that friction that might come? I just don't think it's been thought through enough yet. Um, <clears throat> I, again, I, 
I think that um, it's moving too fast never the choice mm. I do think that uh, the impact of it now on well, I'm going to I'm going to assume that I, I didn't the article I read earlier or, uh, was didn't go into much detail it was a very short article with a few paragraphs but it didn't it didn't mention for example our physical tests going to stay the same or they're going to be lower mm. like if from a physical capability side of things I haven't gone I have on that just the physical mm. capability side the test should stay the same as what they are for males and there's a reason for it it's not they shouldn't lower them because commonly females no um, they should stay the same because that that those strengths that you have to achieve and those times you have to achieve in the runs and the tabs or jumps mm. in your case um and the pull-ups and all the rest of it well it's, it's all obviously all changing now as well those tests but they're there for a reason it's so you you can get a you can get a, an individual on the battlefield who is capable of carrying x amount of ammunition x amount of food x amount of water because that is the most um effective they can be in 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 the way we need to wage war compared to yeah. what the threats are and what other countries are capable of and the rest of it. If you lower tests, then if you lower tests for women, then you'll get women in, you'll get women in the units so have passed a lower test, which across a unit. You'll also get men in that pass lower tests. So if you lower the tests for what you, we'll also get a lower yeah, standard yeah, of male yeah, in absolutely. as well. Absolutely. So it lowers your capability. Yeah. You know, lowers your capability. You can't carry as much ammunition, can't carry as much water. You can't run as fast, can't close the enemy as fast. So you're just less capable as a, as a unit. So, Keep the physical requirements the same. On that aspect, I've got a unit. I haven't got a unit. I haven't got an issue. Mm. I do think that the impact now of, I mean, from the that segregation and unit cohesion, you know, blokes sharing a uh, block together, getting lashed up, and four, you know, eight-man rooms, four-man rooms. Being and naked together. All being that stuff. You know, that if you've not been in those rooms, if you haven't yeah. been in the locker you don't understand how important that really is. No, yeah, yeah. But I, I do think the impact now... Will be, will be far less than it was, for example, when you or I joined, um, because certainly from my experience, as I went to the Korea and we moved into a new camp, we went from an old bunch of barracks, we went into a super camp, mm. I think it's called a super camp, Merville Barracks. Yeah, no, yeah. Did. And um, all of a sudden you went from a block full of, uh, you know, a block of three floors and, and a, a, company be, a company of blogs being there, which is what, 90, 80, 90 people. Well, 70, 80 would be in that block. And the and most rooms were four-man rooms. And then it was maybe one or two individual rooms on each right, floor. Okay. So now it seems to have swung to the... There's more single-man rooms right, yeah. than there are four-man rooms. Mm. And that's on a camp that was designed in the late 90s and then built... Well, designed, yeah, to around 2000. Built, finished building in 2007. So I think because and and flipping phones and internet and all the rest of it, people are just more isolated. It's like yeah. it's it's one of the reasons they start started to bring in the open door policy. You know, you 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 weren't allowed. This is even before we went to that super camp. Um, they had the open door policy where if it was if it wasn't sleepy time, <laughs> you know, if you weren't getting your head down, if it was before nine o'clock, mm. then if you had your own bunk. In a single man room, and you were but you were Tom, a private. Mm. You weren't allowed to shut your door. Your door had to be open. Mm-hmm. No, be, to encourage that, don't shut your door nicely. You're gonna yeah. open your fucking door, and anyone can walk in who they want, and you're yeah. gonna engage. Yeah, you know, you're gonna engage with each other. Yeah, um, that doesn't happen anymore. You know, yeah. it, it wouldn't be allowed. No, it wouldn't be, it'd be seen as a breach you, of you've whatever. Got to be a safe space. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, safe space. It's, so I think with the integration of women in um, 
in a peacetime barracks environment, I don't think the impact is going to be that great. Mm. Uh, there's going to be hideous financial implications mm. purely from well, all the, like all the, all the barracks now with all the blocks, infantry barracks with all the blocks. Well, they've only got toilets designed to have only males. Mm. Well, you, I, and, and a lot of the buildings, there's not enough room to go and stick another female a female you know toilet in mm. and separate showers. Where are they going to put them? Yeah, there's going to be there's going to be whole camps where you're not going to be able to have females on there. Yeah. Because they can't, because they're not, they haven't, they haven't got the, the space to be able to put in the buildings, the infrastructure, according to legislation of what you need for the ratio of men, f- females, female toilets, the to male toilets, mm. and all. It's not going to do it. What happens there? Is yeah. it, the, the financial implication is going to be huge. Um, women on the front line. I mean, they've been on the front line for a long time. Yeah. And, so let's not pretend they're not because, and they've been doing like amazing jobs. Right? Like diversity is key. Like, I'm a massive believer in that. But we were infanteers. We were close combat infanteers. So like, you talked about physical capability. That's the thing. You know, I'm 100 kilos. If I'm lying on the floor, I'm 100 kilos. I've also got 35 kilos of kit on. I need you to be able to, like, drag me and sling me. We we don't play mixed rugby. We don't play mixed boxing yet. You know, because they're very physically orientated sports. Close combat fighting is very physically orientated. And there is something in that needs thinking through about that close combat section that's stacked against the door, about to go in, you know, do we have to force equality in that right now? I don't know. Well, the phys- my only issue when I've, on, I've, on all three, or all three of the Afghan tours, I said all on all the front line, as in, with, you know, the fighting units. And my only issue ever with females being there, and there were females there from 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 dog handlers to medics to uh, you know engagement Art- teams. artillery. You know, the- yeah. My only issue was ever, and the only uh, was ever to do with physical capability. I I can specifically remember an incident where we were in a very very volatile. Well, it's all fucking volatile, but a place where a lot of people had been getting shot and killed. Um, over the over the previous tours, we were there in I'm think this area is 2010. And uh, we were come back in off a patrol, and it was a part where we had a hard target sprint across zigzag. You know, it was a, a part of what you could not avoid it to where we needed to go. And we had two female in- members of the female engagement team there. So, if we were, what they I can't remember the name of that team, but we had those females with us because mm. they were specialised. We went into, I mean, I'm explaining for the benefit of people listening or, sure. or watching. We would go out, hearts and minds. You know, we went into a compound. We were going to speak to someone or those people in the village. And we would bring these females with us because they would go and engage with the female yeah. Afghani ladies because female and female is bad mm-hmm. culture for male to do it. And we were coming back across this wadi and and one of the, there was two of them, one lady, one of the girls, one of the soldiers was physically fit, not to male standards, but she could run as fast as we could. They were carrying less kit, you know, because they weren't fighters. They had their weapon, the minimum ammo, and we yeah. let her protect them. And I was, you know, and the other person, yeah, was the other lady, soldier, was not fit, was overweight. That's not that you don't get overweight people. But she was not fit. Um and in that patrol, we, we, you wouldn't put someone like that on a on a you you would not put someone who slowed a patrol down on a, on the ground anyway. Well you didn't have a choice with her. She had to come on the ground mm. because she was 
part of the female engagement team, but she didn't have to do the fitness stand as we did and have to keep ourselves up to, up to speed like we did. And we were cutting across that body and she slowed us down and I had to hang back with her. I wish I did because she's part of the unit and you, you know, it's, but you go as fast as slowest person. Fuck me. You know, it was, it was, it was not good going across that wadi. That's my only issue. We bring those, bring that fitness levels up, uh, keep them up across the board they are and females in the front line after match that. Cool. But I tell you what they don't have and it's popping at the last five minutes. Testosterone. There is in, in the infantry, like you were saying, close combat, you do not, the state of mind you and I are in now, Richard, okay, is not the state of mind we would be in in five minutes' time if all of a sudden we were going to go mm. and kill people, you know, kill the enemy. Mm. Not. And part of the state of mind we get into and have to get into as part of evolution of males, which is why males are males and females are females, part of that evolution is being able to get a mindset and part of that is testosterone and all those mm. chemicals that we can produce that females don't or they produce less of. We get into that mindset, which makes us as capable in violence as we are as men. Mm. And they don't have that capability. I, I look at it black and white. It, I, it would be great if they did from that, from that mental perspective, because guess what? We would double the pool of people that we could draw on for our military fighting force. Mm. But we don't. It, and this, the things that this don't really get addressed. I mean, the other side of it was, I've mentioned the previous, previous podcast, and I've never heard it mentioned. I've never heard it mentioned. It does not get brought up as a discussion point when you talk about females on the front line. Um, as in, yeah, females on the front line in a fighting unit. Those, those, uh, female engagement teams is not essential that they can deploy. It's not essential to, to protect, to protect the unit, to protect the people we protect in order to achieve the aim. It's not essential because they're not fighting troops, right? So, you got a bunch of females as part of the unit. They have a monthly cycle they go through, which I know you're grinning, it's hideous, but it doesn't get discussed. And it, it's absolutely, but it's absolutely valid. And you don't even have to, you don't have to respond to this if you don't, right? It's absolutely valid. Now, monthly cycle, and I wish you didn't have it because it must be horrendous for them. Now, monthly cycle, that affects their mental capability. Doesn't mean they're getting le- any less capable, but certain, and it affects some females more than others. It affects the way they do things and judge things and make decisions. And it affects sometimes their physical capabilities. Imagine, you know, that has an impact on a fighting force and across, again, that's just, that's just the way we are. Men yeah. are different, women are different. But, men. I mean, that's never been an issue. I mean, women have been in the army for a long time and that's never yeah. been an issue. Like, but why isn't it? What? I don't know, because they operate. I mean, have they ever been in the front line? Well, I think they have. Yeah. I wonder. I wonder. I mean, they've it's been JTAX. They've they been may not. Medics, I, I wonder. Know, they've been uh, RMPs. The Soviets had a lot. Yeah, but what I'm saying is not essential. I may be completely wrong that he, he may have less. Not the impact I would say. I, I think it could have. I wonder. The Soviets deployed a lot of females, didn't they? They deployed a lot of females in the front lines. Mm. There must be other countries that do it. But, Israel does, don't they? Um, yeah, but but not in not in a like not in a war or not in a the kind of prolonged frontline activity that you have in Afghan, Iraq, that, that conventional or, or counterinsurgency stuff, where mm. you're in, a, you know, you fucking, you know, I mean, look at, um, in, on that, on Herrick 4, and I suspect it's the same Herrick 5, I spent some time in that Herrick 4, weeks, on top of a mountain, nothing, on top of a mountain, mm. you know, like nothing at all. Yeah. Now, bring, you know, you bring, bring, bring the, body cycling into it I don't know I, I'd be interested to see if there's any any studies been done that in the past I've, I mean I've worked with 
plenty of female. I hate bringing emerging. it up. Yeah, I hate bringing it up because it's it, it's people listen. You fucking bring, well, it's absolutely valid. It's absolutely valid. Well, I, I, I mean, I I get the argument, but I've worked with loads of like, females in the military, and I work with loads now. I've never noticed their menstrual cycle get in the way of their operating. That's a good I mean, point. I've I've never noticed it. So, yeah. um, I think it's just an assumption that. Uh, I've, I've never ever but thought always been oh, a that's, a, that's a weakness I, no. excuse me um, but then if you if you had someone as part of your platoon right mm. constantly bear in mind the engagement you'd have had with a with a with a, a female soldier on those tours would have been sporadic in existence mm. yeah if you were with them constantly over you know you surely then you would notice it like you notice it with your partner yeah maybe but as you say I've never had it so I can't uh I can't comment. I don't know. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm not saying I'm wrong, but no. I'm saying it's a factor. Yeah. But, I mean, we've got loads of female responders in Team Rubicon. That's not a factor. Like, when we get to... I mean, we're not getting shot at. We're not casivacking people in the same way. We're operating in some pretty austere places, and mm. I've never thought, oh, I can't send a female because they have... That is a very, very good point. It's a very like, good point. Some of our best responders are females. That's um, a very good point. And you've got to take a blended approach, because you know, we all bring different skills. Mm. You know, maybe you can put testosterone as a skill in certain places. It's also a weakness in others. Because mm. whilst when we were going around the door in places, testosterone was key, sending testosterone to a disaster zone can also be a, another disaster because you overreact. You don't think things through clearly because your blood's up. And yeah, so you know what I'm doing now. I I don't see. I don't see why men or women would be better than the other. We just need diversity across the deployment. It's a good point, that. Yeah, I might have to put that old uh, monthly cycle thing to bed. <laughs> I I mean, they've been living with it for centuries, and it's never, it's never made the world stop turning yet. Give it time, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's uh, it's ten, it's ten, it's, yeah, it's ten to seven. We start wrapping it up. Um, Team Rubicon, Team Rubicon. Mm. No, what's the website? Uh, it's www.teamrubiconuk.org. How do teamrubiconuk.org? How do people can people donate on the website if they want to donate? People can donate. People can sign up on the website. Um, people can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, all those good places. It's TRUK on Twitter, is it not? Uh, yeah, pass. I'm uh, yeah, I'm TRUK Rich or something. Yeah. I, if you Google Team Rubicon UK, lots of things come up. Anything else you want to plug or mention? I would just love, I mean, considering the audience that I'm imagining you have, um, I just want them to know that Team Rubicon's out there and there's some really amazing stuff them to be doing after the military. That uh, If they're missing that purpose, they think, they're missing that camaraderie, that sense of achievement that we all had. You know, we served a higher purpose at one point. If you're If you're out there now and you're missing it, Team Rubicon UK is there, ready to to use you to your best again, um, the way we used to feel. Yeah, I, I want to help you out there. I didn't. I <clears throat> I knew of Team Rubicon. I'd heard of Team Rubicon a few years back because someone had been posting on they did, on Facebook. They were deploying with Team Rubicon again, and it was like second or third time. He was loving it. Guy was loving it. Um, but I had assumed at the time it was just a disaster response organization. I didn't know until recently, and you and I were talking that it's. Well, one, it was it started in America. Two, that um, is a charity. I didn't know that. Mm. And three, that part of that charitable thing that you do is not only respond to disasters, but 
is a deliberate assistance for the transition thing with the veterans. Yeah. I didn't know that until a couple of years ago, mm. which is amazing. It's amazing. Because uh, more of that is needed. And especially in an organization like your own, where they, you've got that camaraderie. You got that, that well, I wouldn't say military ethos, but it's just, it's just a, a very military esque or as that military field trip because yeah, I don't, yeah, as in the military field, the people, mm. you got a purpose and, and you work as a team, as a teamwork, we're going to do what you need to do to achieve the aim. But with this, every aim is f to, for good, to help people. Yeah. You know, it's to help people. Um, I, I, I was, uh, I, I, then I started realizing yesterday again through conversations with other, other people online about other things. Uh, I was talking to someone and he, he's, he's getting the CP, but he was, I know he's, he's a tier two medic or is he? Yeah, he's a tier two medic. And I, I said, uh, oh, I'm, I'm meeting Richard Sharp tomorrow CEO of Team Rubicon I said um, I'll ask him about that and he went oh well, yeah, are they a good CP company <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking I'm not joking and then because I you know when you think oh because I know them then everyone must know them yeah, and I thought yeah. fucking hell and he's yeah he's military just got, fucking hell yeah. people aren't aware so yeah mate, I, hope, I hope this can help me get out there and um, and uh, I really enjoyed it yeah, I've really had a good, good time. Thanks for having me on, buddy. Yeah, yeah, no dramas, no dramas. Nice I'm, um, I've got some uh, studies to look up about menstrual cycles. <laughs> cheers, <laughs> cheers, 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 buddy. Awesome. Done. That is it for the show. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, our sponsors today were Westway Nissan. Another shout out to them, giving up to 20% off their vehicles for members or former members of the armed forces. New and used cars, commercial and private sales. They are on the ball. Westway Nissan, .co.uk, uh, Westway Nissan on, uh, on social media as per. Also sponsors today were Rugby for Heroes, a not for profit organization founded by a group of keen rugby players they raised over a hundred thousand pounds for the benefit charities and you can find them at rugbyforheroes.org and on facebook twitter and instagram feeds at rugby number four heroes on social media until the next time out